Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on today's show is Billy Libby, the co-founder of Upper 90, a firm that invests in a hybrid of debt and equity in early stage technology companies to help founders scale efficiently. Billy partnered with Jason Finger, the founder of Seamless, to address a capital structure inefficiency in the venture world. Upper 90s deployed a billion dollars of capital for an LP base of more than 300 entrepreneurs. Our conversation covers Billy's background in electronic trading, formation of an investment club that brought together quantitative investors and tech founders, and the evolution of that club into Upper 90. 
We discuss Upper 90s approach to investing in tech startups, use of data to find lendable opportunities, sourcing and diligence of deals, and lots of examples along the way. Please enjoy my conversation with Billy Libby. Billy, great to see you. Thanks for having me. It's fun to do this. I always love starting with someone's background, and maybe we go all the way back to your sporting days in college and go from there. I always loved being parts of teams. I grew up in a suburb of Washington, D.C. in Bethesda. Went to a private school. It's pretty homogenous. Through sports, it's equalizing. I remember so many of my friends from every part of life in different parts of the city. And you just learn a lot about things that you wouldn't in the classroom. And I think that helped me a tremendous amount, different perspective and exposure. And then I played soccer in college. I've always tried as much as I can with the family now to be as active as possible. So how did you find your way into the investment world? It's a random walk. And I think that's helped us with Upper 90 because we came with fresh eyes into the VC world that hasn't changed that much in 20 years. My dad was always entrepreneurial. He was a small business lawyer and worked for a gentleman that ended up starting this company called Telebank. Telebank was one of the first online banks. And I got an internship there with his help as a senior in high school in 1999. And Telebank went public that summer. (laughs) The stock opened at 13 and closed at 113 or something. It was wild. I always was really interested in technology and how to apply that through traditional businesses. I didn't know much about private equity or venture capital. I wish somebody had you know, told us you can get leverage on your investments and have all the upside. But I worked one summer following that at the White House for the Clinton administration. And then I ended up working in Hong Kong doing investment banking my junior year. And so I use those years to explore and try to do different things. And when I graduated from Wharton, I just didn't want to do investment banking or consulting. I wanted to be in a more fast-paced environment. And when I interviewed, Goldman was the one firm, and I really give them a lot of credit. They said, we're going to hire you if you're a cultural fit for the firm. And we see a lot more of you than you see of us at age 21. And so if you're a fit for the firm, we will figure out where you will be the most impactful. That just made a tremendous amount of sense to me. Every other firm you had to interview to be on this trading desk for fixed income. And how would you know what exists at a bank? They said, we just bought this new business called Ready, which does electronic trading. We own the first exchange called Arca. They put me in this world of quant trading and electronic trading that there were no experts. You rolled up your sleeves. And so my first clients were Gecko and DE Shaw and Two Sigma and in 03, no one wanted to cover those kind of firms. Everyone wanted to go to lunch and do block trading. So I trusted people and followed their advice. And it let me go into an emerging area where data was really being used to change the way that trading worked. And what was your progression from that start? In any new career, I'm just going through this with my team. You just raise your hand and take on projects. If you do a good job, you get more responsibility. So my first client that I was covering was a company called GetGo. Just to give people a sense, Gecko traded more orders in a minute than all of Goldman's clients at the time in a day. How do you build systems to handle that level of transactional volume? Really, it's fintech. It's how do you look at data? How do you build algorithms? And how do you efficiently do a lot of little events? It was really the early days of fintech and using data to price risk and do trading. I learned about operations and how to build product. And my boss at the time said, look, you're a natural salesperson, so we're going to put you in operations. I'm very thankful for that guy and force you to learn how things work and go in the bowels and you come out of it. And I think it makes you a stronger business person. Yeah. So you did that for a long time. What was the 
progression of what you learned over the 15 years you were in that world? You see the power of technology. One of my other bosses said something that really stood out with me. In the trading world, the average commission was one or two pennies. That's what you would pay to get something transacted per share. That really doesn't work for quant trading or fintech. You have to charge fractions of that. And one of the things that he said to me, he's like, a lot of people are really hesitant to change business models because they're worried about revenue loss. Like, Why hasn't the two and 20 model really changed for most people that are picking stocks effectively? He's like, but what most people don't realize is when you lower the cost of something, when you reduce the friction, the volume gains far exceed the loss of revenue. What you saw is when spreads and commissions started coming in, the volume on the NASDAQ and NICE went up exponentially. And so there was much more revenue and total pie as costs came down. But I think as humans, it's hard to give up something near term for the belief that it'll be bigger long term, which is very interesting for me to see the power of technology as you reduce friction in a market, how much bigger the market becomes. Look at the Robin Hoods and other applications where you remove costs, the market gains or the size gains are exponential. So how did you make this transition from you're around fintech, but it's e-trading to what you're doing today? When I was at Goldman, I thought it was really important to understand the client side of the business. Banks are really sales machines. You're selling product to clients. And I felt it was important to be on the other side to understand how does trading work and risk modeling and I went to a company called Knight Capital. One of the really fascinating things that I learned at night was micro-pricing. When trading on the New York Stock Exchange, every client effectively gets charged the same price. So if you have D.E. Shaw, which if they're trading against you, they're usually winning. Like They know at this microsecond that something's mispriced. And if you're selling to them, they're likely making money. So you don't want to trade against them on average. If you're trading against BlackRock, they have so much size that if you're making a market, they're going to keep impacting and buying more. If my mom is buying 100 shares of Google, she has no view of the market at this moment or no size behind her order. So Citadel and Knight went to all the retail firms and said, you're being overcharged because the market doesn't know it's you. So they said, if we know it's you, like an insurance business, like if we know you're healthy and young versus old. So we went to all the retail firms and said, we will build a bilateral relationship with you. And if we know we're trading against you as retail, we'll give you a better price than what the market will give you. Using data to be able to tailor pricing, it's happening everywhere. Data is this ubiquitous asset. That was this eye-opener, the power of data and how you can do individualized pricing. That became a multi-billion dollar business for Citadel and Knight. Through that, Knight ended up getting acquired. They wiped out the management team, so I was let go. I find myself very comfortable talking about these experiences now. You learn and you grow from those things. But I had a year off or six months off non-compete. So I was working, it's like 2014, with a lot of these fintech firms that were just starting to emerge and needed advice of how to connect to the banks and how to acquire customers and how to hire people. So I was an advisor to Robinhood and Kensho and all these firms. So I was investing and advising all these really small fintech firms. That was my first entree into the startup world. But a lot of the same attributes existed. And there was a way for me to add value because they needed some of that institutional knowledge. I started investing in all of these startups and advising them. And at that time, I got to know Jason Finger really well. 
and Jason started Seamless. It was just an amazingly creative person. So most of my investments were in these really cool fintech startups or quant funds. I was at dinner with Jason looking at my phone and I was like, wow, this is great. This quant fund that I'm in, I'm up 5% for the week or the day. I can see what my net worth is at that moment because they ended a flat. And Jason's like, my portfolio is in all these amazing tech companies because as a founder of Seamless and Grubhub, I see all these great opportunities in the e-commerce and tech world. So that's what I invest in. And we were joking, like if I saw a tech deal, why am I seeing that? (laughs) And if he saw a quant fund, it's like, why is he seeing that? And he's like, I want to invest in your deals. And I was like, I want to invest in your deals. He said, well, all of the tech founders that I know would love to have access to more liquid, shorter duration product. And I was like, every quant founder that I know would love to have access to, you join the board of Freshly and can buy all this stock. And also everyone sizes personally. A million dollar check might be a big personal bet, but you could have done 10 million. After that dinner, we said, let's put this investment club together of the 10 most interesting tech founders and the 10 most interesting quant founders. And I think we all put in a few hundred grand. I was kind of running it at night, no fees. It was just a well-organized club. People's networks are really vertical. There's a lot of group think. Opportunities are created when you bring people together from different backgrounds. And through this structure of Jason and I bringing that force together, it ultimately uncovered a lot of opportunities that other people weren't thinking about not pure software businesses. So it wasn't really VC and it wasn't something you could feel. And it was like a bankable business. And that's how Upper 90 started was mashing together these two universes with a pure goal of sharing best ideas and bringing a community of really interesting people together. And I didn't know it would evolve as quickly as it did into Upper 90. It was just, I want to learn from really smart people. And I love bringing people together and create some organization and efficiency around that idea. And if I do that well, good things will happen. But I didn't know that it could be something that it's become. What was that evolution from a club of sharing a couple deals to what became Upper 90? Jason gave me very good advice because during that one year off when I was working with all the startups, there's a temptation to go and join somebody else's startup. Like this is so exciting. And Jason's like, either start your own business or go join a great company. Don't join somebody else's startup. You're taking all the risk and you're the third guy in the door. The VC benchmarking data shows that the third employee should get 50 basis points. And it's ridiculous. That was very valuable advice. And so I went back to Goldman to help build the business that Knight had built and Citadel had built and to help with some of the investments that we're talking about. What evolved was we would meet every month and we would share these best ideas. What happened is, if we're honest with ourselves, the real change is happening in the tech world. There's not much innovation happening in finance. It's really operational alpha and scale. You're seeing that the bigger are getting bigger, the bigger quant funds are getting bigger, and the bigger banks are getting bigger. And every neo bank is now having to become a bank. It's all the same stuff. We have a new product, but now it's all about acquiring customers efficiently. So it's a scale. What happened is all these ideas started coming in from the tech side. One of the first deals was a really fascinating company called FilmRise. And what they were doing is they were taking data from Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, YouTube, Roku, and they were tracking what people are watching online. They would see trends of what kind of content was valuable. So like after The Crown or Bridgerton or the Jordan documentary, they could see that there was a lot of interest in British miniseries or sports documentaries. So with that data, they would then go to the BBC, ITV, ESPN, and they would look at their TV libraries from the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. 
all this long tail forgotten content, they were going and licensing the digital rights to old school libraries. They were buying these rights for one-time revenue. And to give you a context, brand name content is trading at 20 times revenue because banks understand it. And so everyone's like, how much could somebody watch the Sherlock Holmes miniseries on the BBC from the 60s? A lot. (laughs) So these markets are infinite in size and they're just hard to conceptualize. So they were like, we're raising equity to go and acquire all this content. And then we sell it to Netflix or Amazon and we have a five-year contractual payment from Netflix. And the quants are looking at all this data from our club and they're like, why are you raising equity? And the founders are like, what are you talking about? The mantra has been, if you want to grow, you raise equity. And especially as VCs and PE have gotten much larger, that's the direction that founders are pushed. When Jason started Seamless, he said every VC was small and niche, And so they were also dilution sensitive. The quants kept challenging. And what ended up happening with FilmRise is we created, in partnership with some other groups, an off-balance sheet credit facility securitized by Netflix payments. You took the risk of a startup, and now the payment risk is actually Netflix. And so it was this fascinating way of pricing assets and shifting the collateral. I don't like venture debt. A lot of questions we often get is, well, isn't this venture debt? Venture debt is just a tool to underwrite the venture firms. So we're like, let's detach the asset, give credit to the asset because the asset pays back regardless of the company. So that's how this all started. From there, we just kept seeing this repeatability of there was an asset that needed financing where equity was used. And you just had two groups that would never really be together proposing different solutions. And everyone had a goal of how do we help these founders solve problems in a more efficient way? How do we help the companies really own more of their company? There was this purest start, but we could get these really amazing returns because the equity cost of capital, which I find fascinating, you're like, isn't 12 or 15% a lot to get paid in debt to take Netflix risk? What do you think the price of equity was if they had sold part of their company? So I just find it fascinating that no one asks what the cost of equity is, but they're fixated on a headline debt number. Did that become the investment philosophy for Upper 90? So we kept finding these repeatable deals where there was some detachable asset or cash flow. There was a few things that even though the participants were different, there were common goals. So number one is no one was really interested tying up their money for 10 to 12 years at this asset price to get a decent return. We had this big conundrum. Either either tie your money up in private equity for 12 years or venture to get a decent MOIC, or if you wanted liquidity, you were getting very small yield. So it's how do we get a decent return without having to tie up our money for 10 plus years? And that was universal. Number two is that everyone felt like the private equity and venture world hadn't really been changed in a long time. And I saw firsthand how quant came and changed long short equity. Unless you're an exceptional hedge fund stock picker, it's hard to beat the cost of an ETF or it's hard to beat a quant fund. You have to be good at what you do to get paid. And I think that that's going to come to the venture world too. It's been a momentum trade. And so if you're Sequoia or Forerunner or Bessemer, you have services and tools. I think it's going to be hard to prove that you should be getting two and 20 versus an ETF equivalent, which I'm sure will come to this industry or somebody doing something different. This disruption plus how do we get a return that's shorter duration? And if we can offer founders a more compelling tool, a more efficient source of growth capital, that seems like an edge. Sourcing, Jason beat this into my head. If you have good deal flow, there's capital. We built the whole fund around sourcing. That community of 20 people that started the club is the DNA of our upper 90. 
We have 400 LPs. 80% of them are business builders. It's much harder to build a firm that way. But almost every other firm that I come across, it's ex-finance people. Like, hey, my firm was a little too rigid and I was at York and now I want to do something more cool. I was at Blackstone and now I want to do something a little more funky. But they raise money and then say, okay, now we have to go deploy it. Let's figure out how to have this deal flow engine and this way to add value to the founders. And then we'll figure out how to raise the capital. So it kind of happened in reverse. I'm really curious about this credit underwriting. You mentioned the example in FilmRise of effectively a receivable from Netflix. What are the different ways you see in these earlier stage companies that there is something that you're comfortable underwriting with credit? Because credit can be applied to anything, but you have to make sure that if things are stress tested or things go wrong, get comfortable that there's that collateral and that principal recovery. As you said, the simplest form is that there's short-term receivables or working capital needs, which is much more oriented to fintech. Upper 90 is the top corner of a goal. That's a soccer reference. It's like these hard, niche, tough to find, tough to execute deals. And I was talking to my good friend, Akshay, and as I was describing what I think is the opportunity, he's like, it's really the center of the goal. Every business has a fintech component. It's almost like fintech's a horizontal. It's not a vertical. What do I mean by that? One of our first deals was a company called Payability. When you're a seller on Amazon, which there's millions of them selling hiking poles and whiteboards and audio equipment, Amazon pays those sellers 14 days after a sale has occurred. Those people have working capital needs, even it's short duration, like they have payroll, they have inventory. So payability basically is factoring a 14-day Amazon receivable. That was our second deal. Okay, well, who's doing that on Shopify? And then the next deal, Bravo Capital. If you're an app developer on Apple or Google, the thing I like about what we're doing, it's like, I say what's new is old. If we had this podcast 20 years ago, we'd be like, I have a really cool tech product and I sell it in the back of SkyMall or Popular Mechanics. And I do a sale and someone sends me a check and there's like a working capital problem. The friction to start a business online has come down exponentially. If you and I wanted to start a business offline, like a franchise, you'd have to go and get real estate and get insurance and all the equipment and hire people. Think of the barrier to entry to be a small business. In one week, we could go and start a business on Amazon. Tech has outpaced the finance innovation. So you can start a business online almost instantaneously. Still, the banking system, how do you get inventory capital? How do you get working capital? When you download an app on Google or Apple, Apple pays the small business developer 60 days later. Bravo factors that app receivable. You're an influencer. You just completed a job for Nike. You're a small business. It's almost like financing individuals. And it brings together that example I gave of Knight where you're starting to price each type of customer really tightly and then really understanding the e-commerce platforms and how they work, which Jason understands deeply. So There's all of these new businesses being started online where a bank is not going to be able to understand. You and I have 20 homes in the Hamptons and we have all this rental income coming this summer. A bank, if you went to them, would say, well, you have 20 liabilities. There's all of these new opportunities from the influencer economy to the app developer world to people that are creating TV libraries. 
What we found is that the ability to be this financial partner to these online businesses that aren't yet banked and well understood is this big white space. It's exciting and it's good for society because people will be able to have more chances of being their own boss. They just need access to capital. It's amazing if you think about Amazon, Airbnb, Google, TikTok, what these platforms now allow for people to start businesses is unbelievable. We're almost looking for like the derivative businesses being created around these new online platforms that we can finance and be part of. In the deals that you've done, what kind of idiosyncratic underwriting risks come up? We have a team now of almost 25 people. Credit as its own business is not a rewarding business in a lot of ways because your best customers want to get rid of you as quickly as possible. And we like helping build companies and create enterprise value. We said we're only going to invest in a business if we're excited about the business itself. Then it does a credit stand on its own. When we look at credit, first thing is how diversified are these receivables? How diversified is the risk? Because you don't get paid to take more concentration risk in credit. So diversification is your friend. Number two is data's a truth serum. In these cases, you can log into somebody's Amazon account. You can actually verify all of their data from Amazon, from Apple. You can set up bank accounts that control the flow of funds. In a weird way, it's like the ability to do these things in smaller size changes because you control the cash flow and you have a canonical source of data. You want to make sure that you have excess spread. I'm the simpleton. If you can buy things cheap enough where you can charge enough VIG, there's a lot of room for error. An unlevered return is very different than a levered return. How much are you able to charge? How much inefficiencies exist? So we're looking for businesses that have meaningfully more book yield, 25-30% annualized book yield, so they can service our 12-14%. to And if you get stressed like Octane Lending, it's one of our portfolio companies, with an amazing CEO, he finances power sports, jet skis, ATVs. It's a $100 billion industry. It's hard to conceptualize the size of these numbers. He owns the point of sale for power sport dealerships. Most people need financing, even though they're small acquisitions. His cost of capital is high single digits. His book yields on excess spread is like 10 plus percent. Subprime Auto has a 1% excess spread because it's well understood by banks. Finding these niche industries early, there's a lot of room for error. The other thing that I'd say is things that we wouldn't do because we can underwrite well-understood assets. What's a typical recovery for a jet ski or power sport? And what's the typical default rates for a near-prime borrower? And we really look for things like Clutch with the Carvana of Canada. They're buying used cars. So we give them a warehouse to buy used cars, which they're selling through their online platform over 30 to 60 days. We understand there's enough data to look at that asset class. Things that we don't do or haven't done to date are where there's a binary regulatory risk that we cannot underwrite. Scooters. After Bird and Lime came in, one of our LPs started a very successful scooter company called Spin that sold to Ford. Great guy. And he's like, if you look at every city that I'm in, the average cost of a scooter is 500 bucks. And if you look at the ride history, the average payback period on a scooter is three months. So why would I be using equity for something that has a few month payback period? And I have all this data to support it. And if you look at a model, the data looks very compelling. However, as we're talking with our members, we're like, what happens if New York City just decides there's no more scooters? What if there's an accident? We can't price this tail risk of that disruptive asset being regulated out. So 
we decided not to do it, but because there's a lot of capacity, a lot of these bigger lenders and banks do that stuff, but I think they're mispricing that binary outcome that we can't really underwrite. The other thing is you've heard of income sharing agreements or people that are going to get a computer science degree from Carnegie Mellon, two-year program, the job placement's 99.9%. They should be able to sell part of their future earnings to have somebody pay for their school. It's like selling equity in yourself. Fascinating concept. And I think more of this will come in the future. However, that gets into this murky land of student debt. And it sounds great on paper, but there's all these outcomes that you can't underwrite. And so we just stay away from those things. I'd rather be equity in those industries. If it works, it's like a game changer product. People are like, would you finance NFT collateral? Somebody came to us recently about that. I'm like, if NFTs and Bitcoin works, I want to be the equity of that. I don't want to be the debt of that. So I just think it's figure out where it makes sense to be debt and where it makes sense to be equity. We believe we're getting equity-like returns for debt-like risk versus the other way around. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. So you mentioned, with the exception of the ones you won't do where you have these potential left tail events, when you go in and lend to these companies, as you said, when it works, they want to refinance you for less. How have you solved this? You have to find something before everybody. If you do, you might not be able to hold it for very long. It sounds like a bit of a treadmill. And I'm curious how you've evolved just the lending piece over time. I think that we really want to be partners and a more efficient equity capital provider to companies. We think that more and more companies have a need for debt and equity, especially capital intensive businesses that are doing lending or acquisitions or roll-ups. What we learned is that, and it goes back to the way we built the firm, having alignment with the companies we're investing in is critical. And to create alignment, we do majority of debt, but we also invest in equity. So we will not invest in a business or provide debt if we can't also be an equity partner. Sometimes some of the larger growth funds and VCs are upset because they want all the equity. But our view is that there's always room for upper 90 to be like the second. We don't want to lead. Get Sequoia. But if you're not going to get one of the top VCs, you don't need five VCs that are all doing the same thing. Like, oh, we'll help you with talent and we'll do this and that. 10 years ago, that mattered. But now all those tools are available to the companies. So we're like, get the best lead. We're going to be number two. Our capital is greener because we can do debt and equity. And because we're also putting our money where our mouth is, we're not asking for warrants and freebies. 
We're going to be an aligned partner. So in a year, if you need to go and get or can get cheaper debt, equity positive event, and we're aligned with you to be refinanced. It gives you a unique way to do what's right for the company because it'll benefit the company and our investors are in one fund. They get the benefit of both the equity and the debt. In a lot of other funds, there's a different equity group and there's a different debt group. There's this conflict. And I think our view is like, let's do some equity, more debt, because the debt's really what's powerful and most valuable and needed to the companies. But the equity allows us not to just have this freebie kicker. It's like, if they can go get bank debt, that means the equity's in a really strong position. And so our view is that this will be the future of investing, where we can offer this kind of hybrid credit is what we call it, because founders are going to want it. And if we go back to, if you have the best deals, you have the best returns, we think that investors then will be interested in that. But it's to your point, you have to spend a lot of energy educating the founders on what is a product, how does it work? And also you spend a lot more time on capital markets because what we're doing is not traditional. It sounds like the debt piece and the equity piece as you invest are distinct. And so it's not that you're investing in debt with a kicker or a warrant or a hybrid convertible, but you're investing in straight debt and then in certain situations have the option to invest in an equity round later. That's correct. So we say, is this a business that we think we can add value to and that we're excited about, where we think there's real enterprise value potential? Number two, is there a receivable or an asset or a cash flow that we think can allow us to get paid back on the debt, regardless of the company succeeding? We're not smart enough to know which companies are going to crush it. I think we've been more right than wrong, but no one can pick the winners. In Octane or Clutch or Crusoe Energy, there's a lot of excess spread and the debt can easily pay back interest coverage on the debt. And we're not using leverage. And the facilities are 5 to 10 going to 20 to 25. Most of these bigger funds that are trying to raise massive amounts of money, their whole goal is to lock up all this capacity. If you keep your fund size manageable, you will continue to create good returns. Is this a business we want to be in? And is the debt stay on its own? And then is there an ability for us to be debt and equity? And it's not asking for a free option in the future. We make that decision up front. 10 to 20% in equity, 80 to 90% in debt. We follow our money. We always will make that decision up front because we want to be an aligned partner and we think it's the best risk adjusted return for RLPs because we can get into the best companies with this mindset. How do you think about your value add for your portfolio companies? For sure. It's really focusing on how do you add value to the founders and how do you create a moat or compounding value? Our slogan now is it's not how much you raise, it's how much you own. Or another slogan was delay your A. You've raised a seed, you've proven the model, now you want to get into another city or you want to do another cohort. Having a tool like us helps give you this ability to raise equity when you want versus when you need to. It's this bridge flex. Right now, going on to how do we help founders own more of their company, credit obviously is a very valuable tool, isolate the healthy assets. The other thing is tax and just general efficiency. So QSBS, very powerful tool in a qualified small business. Jason's very curious about just tax laws and and ways that founders have incentives to uh, start businesses. So QSBS, as an example, if you look at most companies, the founder is listed on the cap table as the founder. So they get a $5 million QSBS exemption. The first 5 million of gains is tax-free if you hold it for five years and all these things. Well, you can set up five trusts and get five times a QSBS exemption. And then upon exit, you can roll them into one entity. So just think about that. Like you have a $5 million 
tax-free gain or a $25 million tax-free gain. Little things like this that we as like, we're almost as like this capital markets partner where we can come in and really help structure the balance sheet. We can help the founders think about how they're optimizing their investment with ClearBank and say, how do you get insurance on your losses? So instead of using haircut equity capital, you can buy insurance for tail risk or for loss, first loss capital. That was a game changer for them. So it's all of these other tools around capital efficiency that we are able to bring to the table. The earlier that we get involved in the company, the more value we can add. It's really important to find these companies before they raise that big growth equity round, because once that happens after the Series A, it's really an equity-driven narrative. If it's working, they want to put more money in. Driving revenue is probably the second most valuable thing where we're introducing and helping people land customers. The other stuff is becoming more of a commodity and you have to do it, like helping them with hiring. And I don't think that's enough anymore. Most of the value-added pitches, everyone's offering similar things that is just part of the sales pitch now. We focus more on the capital markets, optimization and balance sheet structuring. In what's clearly a competitive environment, you talk about even when you get past the A, you've got lots of equity checks from venture capitalists. How do you think about the duration of your advantage today? I view us as a startup as well, and we have to continue to innovate. We've done more deals recently in Latin America. You just always have to be hustling and adding value. One of the things that I've learned as I've looked back at my career is it's much better to be in an industry with a wind at your back than to try to be the smartest person in an industry. And data is everywhere. Everything is now captured in data, which means you're going to be able to finance almost anything in the future. So I think we're directionally in the right trend. Founders right now face 20% dilution on average through the seed round and greater than 50% after the Series B. That is going to change. A private equity firm or a growth equity firm coming into a Series C or D, sitting at the top of the caps table with liquidity preferences and all these downside protections, and they're ultimately earning more than the founders at exit, to me, seems like that's going to change. I think Tiger's pushing it on the right side where they're like, look, they shouldn't be making 25% IRR. It should be 15. So they're like, we're going to make equity cheaper. And upper 90 on the other side, it's like, hey, you just need less equity if you're a capital intensive e-commerce or tech business. So both of those put a lot of pressure on traditional growth equity. Directionally, that creates a lot more opportunity. So I don't think we need to be the only player in the space. I just think that you're going to find the ability to disrupt the traditional VCPE model seems like a pretty big opportunity. When you're in and around this ecosystem of venture companies and growth, a lot of the model you've described is a niche. It might be hard to see how you scale this. How do you think about the juxtaposition of those two things? As you get older, you think about what do you enjoy doing? Like 70% of our deals come from our LPs and our founders, almost all of them have become LPs. One of the most fascinating deals that we've done, Crusoe Energy, the founders, an amazing guy, Chase Lockmiller. He came from the quant trading world like me. He was actually at Gecko, then went to a company called Jump, was a polychain, had this unique, different set of experiences and was putting them all together in a weird way like I was with Upper 90. And he's like, there's more data needs and more data being captured than there's energy available in the world to crunch all the data and to store it. Where is a way to capture energy to use it for AI and data crunching? 
in the middle of the country in the US where the biggest driller for oil or one of the biggest drillers, most of those projects have no pipeline. So the oil's drilled, it gets shipped out because it's valuable. The natural gas just gets flared because there's nowhere to put it. There's more natural gas that gets flared in the US every year than the amount of energy consumed in Africa and Japan. It's crazy. So he built these portable data centers that go on site to these oil fields where they are flaring the natural gas. He's getting effectively paid to take the natural gas and he's powering these on-prem data centers to mine Bitcoin. If I came to you and I said, you should be an upper 90 because we'll get you downside protected, senior secured, mid-team returns with additional equity upside. And we're doing it in a startup that is mining Bitcoin in crypto. You're like, what are you smoking? <laughs> it's like, how do you have a straight face saying that, right? Chase was at one of our LP events. We were talking about Thrasio and how they were using our capital to buy stores on Amazon that at less than two times EBITDA, that had payback periods of months and this really creative way of acquisition financing. Chase was starting to build out Crusoe. Bain came in, led the seed round. They were proving the concept. We always come in after there's been proof of concept and there's that inflection point of scale. He's like, I was listening to the Thrasio presentation about how you're helping them finance their acquisitions and their inventory. And it got me thinking, our biggest expense for Crusoe Energy is a Caterpillar generator to power the data center. But because we're a startup and because we're in crypto, Caterpillar won't finance it. We're too small for GE. And we just created an off-balance sheet ABL to finance the Caterpillar equipment that has salvage and residual value. And our LTV was really low. And we had a senior security on the entire company. So we ended up giving them a $5 million project finance facility at 15%. And then it went to 15 million. And we ended up scaling with them to 40 million because it had nothing to do with being a crypto Bitcoin mining startup. If you think about it that way, there's just so many different creative ways, but we had that relationship with Chase. We had a way of proposing a bespoke solution. We had an ability to start small. We also invest in the equity. They just closed almost a $2 billion valuation. They're crushing it. And it just gives an example. If you extrapolate, if we're shown a problem, I think we're very good at solving problems. And that goes to having most of our LPs in the tech world. If you just realize that this strategy is capacity constrained and you're okay with it, which I am, then it's liberating. You don't have to go and raise gargantuan funds. And you know, I think you start rubbing. I actually think bigger credit funds that aren't the biggest are actually, in my opinion, a competitive disadvantage because they don't have the cheapest cost of capital and they can't be nimble anymore. It's kind of a no man's land a little bit. So then they have to do financial engineering to like be mez and pick. And, you know, it's kind of like they're, they have to introduce a lot of other exogenous risks. Like we just keep it simple. Like we're always senior secured and we bet the company will keep growing with us. When you start with this pretty interesting, exclusive group of a couple hundred entrepreneurs gathering together to provide capital, the conversations you've had with the institutional market, I know it's the beginning of that. Where have you seen that evolution in your conversations? Every business has different holes, not coming from the traditional asset management world for me specifically, also for Jason, I think it's an advantage because you look at things differently and have more of an open mind. You're not copying. However, there's certain laws of the jungle of how that world works. And so our view is that this hybrid creates our flywheel. I think for a lot of the pensions and sovereigns and some of the larger family offices and foundations, 
One of the challenges with credit is it's very tax inefficient. You get the benefit of obviously the short-term gains, and but obviously it's taxed at a, at a higher level. So I think that some of the groups that have tax efficiency on their side really like the credit profile. So I, I think that we're, we're looking to figure out like who is the right kind of institutional partner for us that can help allow us to spend more concentrated time with our LPs and help reduce the amount of time we're spending on capital markets. So I think there's definitely a role for us to have a partner that as these companies de-risk and need more size, there's a switching cost and a familiarity. We should have a partnership where we can offer cheaper capital. That's something we're really excited about because I think I like to spend my time hunting, finding these deals, building that rapport with our unique LP base and having a partner that has already built that capital markets scale. That doesn't seem like the smartest thing for us to try to rebuild. So we're really thinking of who would be the right partner that has some flexibility, but also can offer a graduation facility as these companies scale. That's something we're starting to really think about and want to invest in over the next year. Well, Billy, I want to turn to a couple of closing questions before I let you go. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I love playing sports. Anything where you're off email, you're forced to concentrate, is mentally critical for me. Running a business, I'm sure like you, you always have to-do lists and emails. And when you're doing something that requires focus, like playing sports, you have no choice but to be present. I think that's something that I need to just mentally continue to make a priority. What's your biggest pet peeve? I think my biggest pet peeve is when people think that they're the smartest people in the room. They have to sound like they're the most on point. Most people I've learned that think they're the smartest people in the room are not the smartest people in the room. So I think people that are not open-minded and like think they know everything. I, I just think like we don't have to make something seem like it's bigger or so much more advanced than it really is. And just being comfortable with that. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? I've already talked a lot about Jason. He really helped give me the confidence to go start something on my own. So I'm very grateful for him. People in finance, we pretend that we're risk on, but we're really risk adverse. And you need someone to help you build up the confidence to do that sometimes. The two people outside of him, one is Mark Gerson. Mark's somebody, if I think about having touched a lot of different parts of my life, he introduced us to our rabbi who married Tiffany and I. He helped get the club set up with me, was the first person to commit to the fund, introduced us to Thrasio, which has been a marquee investment for us. We're the first capital in that company at a $12 million valuation. People that have really been with you and always had your best interests and never really expect something in return. He's somebody who really stands out in a meaningful way. I've always really enjoyed it. And we both know him, Savni, somebody who has a really creative, open-minded approach and thinking a step ahead, not just in ideas, but also he has this amazing connectivity with first-time founders. It's just like any business. It's finding people at that right stage. He's also expanded my mind, expanding my network and thinking of how to learn about these new industries. So those are two people that just kind of jump to my mind. But it goes back to your pet peeve. I really now realize I'm a net pay-it-forward guy and like creating value. And I just think that if you find people now that are net takers, you really just cut them out and just spend your energy on people that you really think you can build meaningful, deep relationships with. And I I think that's been a big learning for me over time as well. What's the biggest mistake you've made and what did you learn from it? 
two things. Sometimes when you see an ability to make things better, things take time to change, especially in large organizations. Build consensus, be patient. Don't think that you're going to change things bottom up. When I was at night, I saw a lot of room for efficiencies to be gained. Our division at night, which is doing all this market making, 10% of the employee base, but 110% of net income. Trying to push all these ideas of how to get leaner and meaner and not focusing on what is my role, understanding what I can control, put my head down and not trying to change the world. And the other thing is I'm naturally good at sales. And I always felt like sales was a bad word. And it's like, that's flaky. And it's like, what's really there? And so I spent a lot of my career at Goldman, like running product development and challenging myself to do something that wasn't sales. And I really think if I had focused my energies earlier in my career on like what I am best at and most naturally able to lean into and, and get return on it, you know, investment, it would have helped accelerate my career faster and probably made life easier. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? My dad always said, it's more exciting to make your own money, trying to do it yourself. And it's more rewarding if you do it versus somehow someone else doing it for you. What do you need to live a successful, healthy life? There's a role for money, but if you let that become your driving light, there's someone who always has more money than you. And my dad always used to tell me, he always wants to be in business with people where you can leave your wallet on the table and you trust them, not maximizing and just working with people you trust, even if you're going to make less. All right, Billy, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? I think we touched on it briefly. It's if you think about what you're best at and what's most natural to you, you're going to end up having such a higher return on your time leaning into that versus trying to do something that is not natural. And so I just, I think that's my life lesson that I've learned for myself personally. Great. Billy, thanks so much for taking the time. Really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time. 